morning again. You know, last week we began our Christmas sermon series called Advent Conspiracy, and a lot of people think, oh, it's a conspiracy, like a conspiracy theory. And conspiracy is just something that, you know, where the idea that we're all doing the same thing, we're all doing this together. Christmas at the time seems like it's somehow, though, gotten out of control. You know, every year I, I have good intentions of, like in June, planning out Christmas. What are we going to do? What's the Christmas Eve service going to be like? But then all of a sudden, it seems like in June, I have to deal with everything in June that I have to deal with. And before I know it, Thanksgiving is here. And then on the Christmas starts, Christmas gets in full swing with Christmas lists, Christmas lights and wrapping, Christmas cards, Christmas presents, Christmas parties. It just seems to, this time of year seems to take on a whole hectic life of its own. And on top of all this, our society seems to ramp up its bombardment of us with advertisings urging us and messages urging us to buy more, buy more, so that we can accumulate more. And, and, and so we can fool ourselves into thinking that our happiness is found in what's under the tree. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 19 through, 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, as a society, we love to lay up our stuff. Look familiar to anybody? It's not mine, by the way. You know, during the pandemic, the demand for storage space increased exponentially. And, and I was thinking about that this week. Now, why would that be? And I think it's because people had to spend more time at home amongst their stuff. And they saw it and they realized they had too much stuff. So what did they do? They bought some space to put all their stuff that they didn't need instead of eliminating it. Out of sight, out of mind, right? According to Square Foot Inc., I'm, about, I'm a numbers guy, so I like to look at statistics and numbers. One in 11, Mar- one in 11 Americans, this is for me, they pay an average of $98 a month for storage, for extra storage outside their home. One in 11. So, obviously, I have to look at that and say, okay, if that's one in 11... How many total people, how much total money is being spent on storage spaces every month? There are 336 million people in the United States. That means that we are spending roughly 2 billion, 7, no, yeah, 700 million or 784 million. I have 700 million up there, but 784 million or billion dollars, 2 billion, 784 million dollars a month in the United States for storage. This is why the storage business is booming right now. Up on Ardmore Avenue, there's, there's a place up there by the, what used to be the Lantern, which is a, actually now an a, a, a antique and, and auction place. Just south of that, that's always been an open field since I was a child. It's full of storage areas now. They just finished building them not too long ago. Hugh Mackey, as a social researcher, he states that the demand for storage space is going to increase, not decrease, 
increase. Consumerism is rife. We are more materialistic than ever. And that consumerism is supported by mass marketing that says, your possessions are the measure of your worth. We cling to our stuff as a kind of reassurance or a, a, a symbol of what we would call permanence. But that's not how we're supposed to live. Look at what Jesus says in Luke twelve fifteen. He says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against covetousness. That's wanting things, desiring things, especially other people's things. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We want, we covet, we obtain. For what? So we can store it in a storage area. And ultimately, in the end, what's going to happen to it? It's all going to burn up. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Uh, Excuse me, the earth is a heavenly body. We're in the heavens. We are in the universe. It will burn up. Everything we have will be gone. So, We continually seek after possessions in this world. And all of this seeking puts a huge strain on us. It puts a huge strain on our relationships and on our own sanity. Sooner or later, the bills must be paid for everything that we've acquired. Again, i got to look at the numbers. And at the end of the third quarter of this year, so that would have been in that would have been in September. At the end, the U.S. credit card de- uh, debt topped one trillion dollars, and that is not paid off each month. It's one thing to have a credit card and use it, and then pay it off every month. But sixty-five percent of people carry a balance over to the next month, and forty-six percent of those will take a whole year to pay it off. Oh, and the credit card companies love it. Obviously, you realize that every merchant has to pay a percentage of their whatever somebody puts on a credit card. That merchant has to pay anywhere between two and six percent, possibly, depending on depending on how many how many transactions they have. So when you use your credit card, it's costing the merchant. So the merchant doesn't just eat that money. That merchant actually calculates that back into the cost of the products. Most of the smart ones do. So you're paying it, and then when you don't pay your credit card bill off, you're also paying interest to the, and the company. So the company double dips. They get interest, basically interest on your purchase, and they get interest on the amount you're not paying. The average interest rate currently is 21.19%. And as we as Americans, we pay $120 billion in interest and fees every year. Now, what could we do with $120 billion? How many people can we help with $120 billion? Proverbs 22.7 tells us the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. You're a slave to it. 
We've become slaves to our credit cards. We've become slaves to our debt. We've become slaves to the credit card companies. And we've done this willingly for the, view, for the value of convenience and for greed. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm saying that we, I am included in that. I have been known to do the same thing. You know what the number one stress is in marriages? Financial. About a third of couples in the U.S. have conflict in their marriage and in their relationships because of money. Now, some people may think, well, it's just because we don't have enough money. Um, Statistics don't show that. Statistics show that if you can't solve your money problems without money, with a low amount of money, you're going to be even worse with a lot of money because you're going to have the ability to buy even more stuff and you'll find yourself right back in the same spot. The financial burden of excess spending can lead to stress and anxiety, distracting us from the joy and the peace that comes, supposed to be coming to us at Christmas time. It strains our relationships, hurts our families. Hurts, in reality, it hurts our economy, because it's a lot of money wasted, and a lot of money put in pockets of people that have plenty of money. Pressure to meet our expectations of our society And the compounding credit card bills will lead to disagreements and tensions. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the hustle and bustle of of the holiday season, I I used to work retail, I know what it gets like. I worked retail for 10 years. Hated Christmas. Hated 12 hours of, of, of being on the floor helping people find Christmas gifts for everybody. It was, it was exhausting. It was exciting, but it was exhausting. But this hustle and bustle of the holiday preparations, we lose the, the true meaning of Christmas. It gets overshadowed by the focus of material possessions, extravagant gifts, and the pressure to create that picture-perfect celebration. And isn't that how the evil one works? He will take something that is so good. I mean, believe me, celebrating Christmas is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to get together with family and to to enjoy the time together. It's it's a great thing to show someone how much you care. It's It's a good thing to give someone a gift. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all good. But what does he do? He takes something that's good and seems good, and looks good, and he uses it to distract us from Christ. Now, I'm not saying that he is responsible for everything, all of the over-commercialization. That is not just Satan's doing. I don't like to give him too much credit. Because to give him too much credit, I think he's going to get even worse. I think that we've got to understand, it's not just him. First John, John tells us in 1 John 2.16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. For many of us, it's, it's not just that Satan is doing these things, it's that our own sinful nature is leading us to, to attempt to serve two masters. But, but, I, but still, I believe that Satan actually relishes the fact that we do that. 
he, he wallows, he enjoys the covetousness to the point that we forget Christ. When our focus shifts primarily to the gifts, the decorations, the elaborate feasts, the depths of the sincerity of our celebrations compromised. Superficial expressions of joy are just that. They replace that profound, deep sense of gratitude that we have for the gift of Christ in the manger. We feel pressure to meet societal and family expectations about the scale of our celebrations, the value of the gifts, the elaborateness of the, of the decorations. This pressure can lead us to stress and a lot of division and our diversion from the heart of Christmas. I'm not being by humbug. I think we need to celebrate Christmas greatly. I think we, we need to have such joy at Christmas time. But we've got to be careful not to let those things that we're using to celebrate take away the joy that we have. The Bible calls us to live lives of simplicity, of humility, and of contentment. Paul told the church at Philippi in Philippians 4, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. He was talking about how you know, he's, money and the importance of it. He said, not that I'm saying I'm, I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's saying, I have had it all. I have had plenty. I have had want. And you know what? I have learned to be content in both. And how do we do this? How, because we, in our society today, we think that it's, it's all about how much I have. And if, if I'm not happy, well, if I'm not happy with my job, if I don't think I'm going to be paid out, I need to find another job where I get more money. And believe me, there's nothing, nothing inherently wrong with being upwardly mobile. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. There's nothing inherently wrong with having money. The problem is, is the love of it. That's the problem. It's desiring it so much that it goes before anything else. And at Christmas time, it gets so easy to let that happen. But we need to be content. And we can only be content when we have Christ at the center of our lives. We are to live lives that are counter-cultural. I mean, today, many people look at the church and say, I don't see anything different. They're just like me. They have problems. We have problems. They're seeking money. We seek money. I see no difference. Now, that's not everybody. I'm not, I don't want to bunch the whole church in together. But I think individually, each of us have to look at us, ourselves and say, are we living lives that reflect that we are content with wherever God has us? Because if we don't, if we're not, then we've got to be careful. We will lose the focus of the true meaning of Christmas. And the true meaning of Christmas actually comes from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That, that is the true meaning of Christmas. That God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Now, I want to begin my next part here by making something very clear. I am not an environmentalist. 
at least in the sense that the world sees it. I love trees, but I'm not a tree hugger. I have ran into many of them in my life, unintentionally hugging them because I was trying to catch a football and hit a tree instead. I know you're saying, well, that explains a lot. Um, I'm not a tree hugger, but, but I love trees. I, I have a fireplace. I love to burn trees. Um, but I love trees. They're beautiful. I think God's creation is amazing. I'm a conservationist. I'm a conservationist, not a conservationist, a conservationist. I believe that our planet is a gift from God and that we are to manage it well. God did not give us the world to degrade it and to destroy it. We do not have carte blanche that we can do whatever we want to the world and destroy it. And I think we as a society have done some pretty terrible things to our, to our world and in the process to us. I've been doing a lot of research on this in the last two years. The amount of things that we have done to ourselves as a society and to the world. And I think one day we are going to have to answer for it to God. Because we're here to manage this world, not take advantage of it. Back in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You and I have dominion over all of creation. We are the top dog. Okay? We are more important to God than all of his creation. That's what I tell people. Listen, if I have to choose between killing an animal that's attacking a child or letting that animal attack a child, I'm killing the animal with my bare hands if I have to, to protect that child. That child is more important to God than that animal. But at the same time, we need to manage our world well. Man was created by God to be in charge of the earth. He placed him in the garden for a specific purpose. And I want to look at this. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I haven't told many people this, but my goal next year is to learn Hebrew. I am going to teach myself Hebrew. Why would I want to do that? I don't know anybody who's Jewish. I don't know anybody around here who speaks Hebrew. I want to read the Bible in its original language. My goal for next year is to be, be able to read Genesis 1, the whole chapter of Genesis, in Hebrew. Not to have it memorized, but to actually look at the words and know what they are and know what they mean. That's my goal. Because we've got to look at the context and we've got to look at the words. The Hebrew word for work is abad, A-B-A-D. It means to work or to serve. And it can be defined as to till or to cultivate. Well, Where was Adam put? He was put in a garden. What do you do in a garden? You till it. You cultivate it. There weren't any weeds yet. So he didn't have to worry about weeds, but he had to take care of the garden. The nuance here is that we are to adorn. We are to embellish, to improve the creation that God has given us. We are to make it look even more beautiful by adorning it and caring for it. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar, S-H-A-M-R, shamar. In this, it means to exercise great care over. It's to 
be stewards of. You know what a steward is? A steward is somebody who is given property that belongs to somebody else that ultimately will go back to that person. My dad always taught us, you borrow something from somebody, you give it back to them in better condition than they gave it to you. So when I go to the rental center and I rent a piece of equipment, I make sure that thing is spotless when I give it back to them. And that's what we are supposed to do with the earth. We are supposed to take care of it. So that when we give it back to God, we are caretakers. We must maintain it. And at times, we need to protect it. Uh, you, you look about through our history, you see the times like, for example, the bison. There was a time there were maybe 30 bison left in the world. That was it. There were millions of them running across the plains in early American history. And it got down to there were 30 left. Well, now they're coming back because people are taking care of them. Elk, another great one. Elk, they were almost, they were almost gone now there are elk all over the place. There's an elk in Pennsylvania. There's elk in Michigan. The bear, a good example in here in Indiana is the American bald eagle. We got one that flies over our house. There's a couple that live down in Bluffton on the river. Many of them over in Salamone. They were almost gone. That's our national symbol. Good thing Benjamin Franklin didn't have his way. It was supposed to be he wanted the turkey. Could you imagine eating the national symbol every Thanksgiving? But the bald eagle is now coming back. We need to exercise great care. We are caretakers. Protect it. We need to return it to its owner, which is Yahweh. It's an our creator. But see, the, it's funny because the holiday season seems to be a time when we ramp up our consumption. And with the waste that is so prevalent in our society, the other 11 months becomes even worse. I mean, have you ever tried to, if your grandchild or your child has a toy, have you ever tried to get that toy out of its packaging without a chainsaw? Seriously. Got this little thing like this, and the package is huge. It's got all this plastic and all, and all these wires. Can I hold it all together? And... and it doesn't get recycled. And believe me, I'm not a big recycler because I'll give you a little, little hint on a, a truism that I know. Maybe, and I'm going to guess at this number, maybe 20% of the plastic that you put in your bins actually gets recycled. The rest of it gets sold to other countries to get dumped, basically. We're not good at recycling. Overconsumption creates more waste. And I'm not saying that we need to, quote, go green. Because, believe me, going green is not the answer. Because you know that electric cars actually cost more carbon, takes more to create an electric car than you save by having an electric car. And guess where most of our electricity comes from? Coal and natural gas-fired plants. So that's ridiculous. I'm not saying we need to go green. What I am saying is, we just remember that we are stewards of a beautiful gift of creation that God has given us. And we need to take care of it. That's all. And speaking of gifts, during this whole series, we're really going to be focusing on the shepherds, and we're also going to be focusing on the magi. They started out on this long and this very arduous journey to seek and worship the newborn king of the Jews. And I'm sure they faced many trials on this road. We don't know the details. All we know is that they started and they ended up in first in Jerusalem and then ended up in Bethlehem. Traveling such a great distance, we know from history, was not without its issues. 
But their journey is representative of the spiritual quest that we are to be on. We are to be seeking Christ with dedication and determination. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Remember last week I mentioned that the Magi were not Jewish. And yet here they are. They are coming to worship the king of the Jews. Seeking to find the Messiah. And this seeking that they're doing, it speaks to the universal significance of the birth of Christ. Their inclusion in the account of the birth of Jesus highlights the invitation for all people from every corner of the earth to come and to worship the Savior. The story continues. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why were they troubled? Well, there's a new king coming. That means Herod's out. Ooh, wait a minute. And all the people who have profited from Herod are out. He says, it says, in assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is Christ, the Christ to be born? Where is this Messiah? Christ is Christos in, in uh, Latin and in uh, Greek, and it's Christ or Messiah, Meshach in Hebrew. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are to be by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you small from, from you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. So he knew when Jesus was born. And well, later we find out that he knew, and he knew that, and that's why the boys two years and younger were killed, because he thought he was probably close to two years old or less. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm, I'm working, I just finished up last night. Well, I didn't finish, I finished getting it recorded. I'm, I'm putting up another video on one of my, my YouTube channels for, about, is Christmas pagan? And one of those things it talks about is, there's actually a very close correlation between a, a Roman festival called Saturn, Saturnella, Saturn, I can't say it now, Saturnalia, Nalia, Saturnalia. And it's a worship of the of God of Saturn. And there were gifts given that time. And people think, well, that's where it comes from. And we know that where the, at the first Christmas, at the first Advent, that the wise men, or at least within the first couple of years, the wise men brought gifts. So what did they bring? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So why these gifts? I want to kind of touch on this. Gold. Well, gold was the first gift, and gold is a symbol of Jesus' kingship, his authority. It acknowledged that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, but he is king of all creation. They gave him frankincense. Frankincense was used in religious ceremonies. It's the, it's the incense that's burned, and it was used to symbolize the divine nature of Christ. The Magi, in bringing this gift, were acknowledging that Jesus is God incarnate. 
Then there was myrrh. Myrrh is a symbol of sacrifice and suffering. Myrrh was used in embalming. You would put those myrrh spices on the dead bodies so they wouldn't smell, so they wouldn't decay so quickly. It foreshadowed the sacrificial death that Jesus would suffer on the cross. Jesus' mission was one of redemption. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. These three gifts align with the threefold role of king, priest, and sacrifice that Jesus was going to be. And they also fulfilled an Old Testament prophet. Prophecy back in Psalm 72 it says, May the kings of Tarshish, Tarshish was the farthest distance they knew about, it was on the other side of Spain, and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. See, the Magi's gifts go way beyond their material value, they represent the giving of their hearts and their lives to Christ demonstrating a profound act of worship. The first thing they did when they saw him was they fall down to the ground and they worship him. We are challenged to present our best to Christ, not just in material possessions, but in the surrender of our hearts to live for the King of Kings. Paul tells the church at Rome, he says, I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Christmas is a time of giving. The Magi's gifts inspire us to, to meaningfully, with a focus on worship, surrender and acknowledge Christ's lordship in our lives. We have to strive today for a more balanced and meaningful approach to celebrating Christmas. So my challenge to you is let's intentionally set some time aside in the next few weeks to pray, to reflect, and to read Scripture. Read the account in both Matthew and Luke of the birth of Christ. Refocus your hearts on the miraculous and the redemptive story of Jesus' birth. Seek out acts of kindness, generosity, and service that are tangible expressions of the love of Christ. Emphasize the true spirit of giving during this Christmas season. Most of all, Paul tells us, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your minds on Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray.